Welcome to the C Word that can serve this podcast. Today we're talking about environmental monitoring. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in Kimbarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Hello everyone, and today we've got a special guest host. Who could you it be? Can never guess. You can never guess. I have to stop singing the intros. It's so awful. I'm so sorry. Please introduce yourself. Well, back by no popular request is Jane Henderson. <laughs> Except our popular popular request and we're in charge. So <laughs> I'm just available at very late notice. <laughs> and I teach conservation at Cardiff University. And I also do quite a lot of training with preventive conservation stuff. There was this weird bit where I was like, Oh, surely we've done environmental monitoring and Chloe was like no that seems like a thing that we would do yeah I think what we have done are things that bring in environmental monitoring on and, and environmental controls so we've done the sustainability one jumps to mind because we were talking quite a lot about uh, if you haven't listened to it listen to it I don't know some link in the show notes question mark <laughs> listen to it not right now but after this. not right now i think we were talking about uh, things that can be done to you know lower the amount of electricity yeah. you use by essentially doing a, a soft touch approach on your environmental controls but this is how to tell what your soft touch approach on your environmental controls is doing yes and we've talked about things like uh, building your own loggers and stuff like that right so we've uh, we have kind of talked around environmental monitoring but we've not actually had it as a topic mm. which i think is the bit that confused me because i was like really and who better to talk about it with than the queen of preventative <laughs> conservation <laughs> her very self I've always fancied Zarina of Friends of Conservation, if that's possible. Oh, nice. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'll write that down. <laughs> I think almost better clothes, you know, more flouncing. Well, that's how I remember you from Cardiff, actually, because I don't, I don't think that your lab coat was particularly flouncy, but it was a little bit more flouncy than everybody else's. So when you swished around corners, for example, there was a certain amount of flounce. I mean, is that just because ours were still really stiff from not being washed enough? <laughs> Picking up the one that nobody else would wear and it was the biggest yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yuck. <laughs> Wash your lab coats, everybody. <laughs> so, environmental monitoring. I think you did quite a lot when you talked about raspberry pies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So we did one, we've done one on Arduinos and one on Raspberry Pi. And ultimately, both of them, we were kind of talking about, well, you could build your own logger if you really wanted to. I will go for the not building my own option. Closest I've got to that side of things is my tech partner um, has offered to build me a, a warning light for when my museum system has been automatically oh. turned off by some computer tech issue which happens every so often and um, that's the closest I've got to get somebody else to make something for me that isn't even a logger. I think all preventive conservation staff should have like a helmet with an amber rotating beacon on the top that goes off when they go out of limits. Yes! <laughs> that would be amazing. We'd widen our limits a little bit because the amber rotating beacon would be kind of like a disincentive for overly tight uh, targets. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Some sort of massive overkill to any warning system. But it does get us onto that how quickly we get into stressing over tiny, tiny changes in the numbers. And you know, I think environmental monitoring ends up there so quick if it's all going horribly wrong you kind of stop monitoring because you don't want to know and if it's all going well <laughs> you sort of almost get to that point where you kind of um 
you're playing for the flat line. You're almost you. You're sort of so driven that you just want like perfect graphs. I've never had perfect graphs. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I'd like I like the idea, the concept of perfect graphs. But I'm so you know, even in a modern building, which I am in, I, this, I've never had perfect graphs in my life, and so I just go, okay, well, nothing's flashing at me, so we're probably all right. I'm just happy if it's not leaking. I'm just happy if it's even vaguely within the parameters. You know, it's, it's, I'm happy with that, to be honest. What makes you happy in environmental monitoring? That's really what people should spend more time thinking about. What actually makes you happy in this situation? And set your flashing lights for that. What makes you happy in environmental monitoring, Jane? Oh, I guess proportionality. You know, like the amount of effort you put into it actually generates the amount of benefit that you get out of it. So, you know, I quite like colleague who said to me, I don't monitor in here because there's nothing I can do about it. Oh, yeah. That's the most you response I've ever heard. And I absolutely agree. So he was like, let it go. But then you've got other people who might, I don't know, you might have put in a huge amount of expensive kit or whatever in. You put your loggers in and buy a lot of money on loggers and then nobody looks at them. Or you look at them Mm -hmm. six monthly and then write a report and send it to management who look at it in three months time. And then someone says, you know, oh, by the way, for the last nine months, your one million pound piece of equipment has (laughs) been destroying your collection. Oh, God. (laughs) So it's totally disproportionate it the other way. And that, so it's either way annoys me. I was sitting in on this webinar. I think I liked that it opened with that gradually collections care professionals have kind of trained people to be data hoarders. Like you should monitor your environment. We've gotten to the point now where people know that. And then they just hoard data and then they never look at it or do anything with it. And they're terrified of it. And it just sits there. <laughs> I feel like we could do a little bit of that song, Data. Huh, what is a good <laughs> <laughs> It's not not for nothing, but you've got to use it. And there's quite a lot of surveys that we've done um, in Wales, a spotlight survey for Welsh Government. And there's been other surveys, the British Library did one. And there is quite a lot of evidence of the gap between people who collect the data and the people who interpret their data. That really does freak me out. (laughs) Would you like to hear what's worse? Yes, please. What's worse is having a thermohydrograph. This is because I'm very old. People used to have thermohydrographs when I was... I love them. I love them. I think they're beautiful. But I'm going to see someone whose thermohydrograph isn't working. And I went to see them and their thermohydrograph wasn't working. And it wasn't working because it was in a box, in a cupboard with no batteries in it in the office. And they wondered why it wasn't controlling the environment in the galleries. (laughs) Oh, that's a misunderstanding and a half. Wow. (laughs) Well, I think I can help you with that. (laughs) I love it when there's a simple solution. (laughs) Switch it on. (laughs) Let's take it out of the box and let's lower our expectations what it's going to be able to do. (laughs) Do you think we're at the stage of technological changes where we now have to explain what a thermohydrograph is? Do you think? Well, we'll link to that. Uh, They are beautiful pieces of equipment, by the way. You still see some of them around and about. They've got a couple of arms drawing lines onto chart paper. And often, you know, the chart paper's gone around for a couple of years. So you've got quite an impressive sort of mountain horizon. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. Which is sort of beautiful, but also like, why did no one change the paper? I mean, I do have a thermohydrograph in my store that does look like that. But what it's really telling me is it's a confirmation that the environment doesn't change very much. And if there's a sort of outlying line, then I know there's a problem. I just don't know when it occurred. <laughs> so in terms of how the tech has changed, you've got that thermohydrograph, which people used to leave running or forgot to put the batteries in or didn't change the pens. And that's kind of been replaced now with the digital ones that are sending data to your computer that you're then either not opening or you're not downloading. Mm -hmm. Or worse, you're kind of not processing. 
So you've got strings and strings of data, but it's just kind of sitting there. And I think it's kind of less visible than the thermohydrograph that's been neglected, but it's still bravely, bravely giving us little wiggly lines. All on its own. <laughs> to the little logger that sits there, you know, sort of almost, depending which logger you have, they can almost like disappear into things, can't they? they? Oh, they definitely can. I mean, I worked somewhere, right, where basically they knew they used to have an environmental monitoring system. Oh, wow. And... In, yeah, but in a, in a very kind of a, once upon a time, we, we used to collect the data. And I was like, oh, okay, wh- where is this going to go? And uh, basically they were saying, well, we, we, we can't, we stopped paying them. We don't have any of the software anymore because we've all upgraded our computers since. No idea where that's gone. Okay. And they were like, well, the equipment will still be around. And I was like, okay, where? And they were like... Uh, <laughs> everywhere maybe um, and it's just because they were so incredibly beige that they just blended perfectly into the background <laughs> which in some ways is great because it's very not it's not distracting to look at the case but it meant that they'd been finding them for years and kind of they open a case and go oh here's another one uh, and I just love these sort of neglected little <laughs> little soldiers who are just standing there going oh nothing's happening and it's just like oh that's so adorable um, so yeah Yes, they can be incredibly beige. <laughs> Neglected soldiers. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, as a, there's a small amount of guilt here because I'm resonating quite strongly with everything you're saying in a bad way. Um, <laughs> firstly, I do use my data, but mainly to check that nothing's going wrong, to check that the computer is still asking for the data, which sometimes it doesn't do because I'm pursing my lips at it. Um, and then I also use it when a lending body says, what are your environmental conditions like? And then I will produce the data for them and go, oh, Jesus, I hope this isn't too embarrassing to look at. And oh, no, there's a huge gap where the system stopped the data thing from collecting data. Oh, no. Um, Which happened, I, you know, particularly sorry about this because it happened whilst I was on furlough and I couldn't Mm. go into the building so I couldn't fix the thing and so I had to get onto the remote viewer thing and that was broken too because I hadn't done something because I was on furlough and it was a nightmare. Confession number one is that's how I use my data for monitoring, honestly monitoring, but also here here is the thing um, to external bodies. The other thing is that yesterday... My environmental monitoring system is, uh, I love it, and it's provided by Miko, and we'll talk, I'm going to be talking to them later in the show in a little interview. So they're turning up on Thursday. So yesterday I had to voyage around my museum, mostly in the dark, with a stepladder and a box of monitors collecting them together so that they could all be sorted out. It sounds like you're some sort of reverse burglar. Yeah, yeah. So my uh, my manager's on maternity leave, so I have not done this before because it was it's on her computer. It was her thing, and this is part of the handover. So I was just searching around these dark galleries and these like ridiculous sort of cubbyhole spaces, and they're incredibly difficult to find. <laughs> it took me four hours. Four hours. They're at eleven. <laughs> Complete confession, at some point when there was an exhibition changeover somewhere I worked, one of the loggers got misplaced and we had no idea where it was. All I could see was that it was sending approximately the same data as before, but a bit wigglier. So I thought, it's not in the case anymore, but it's probably in the gallery. 
because it doesn't really match any of the other graphs. So I don't think it's any of these locations. Oh my god. But we just could not find the thing, right? <laughs> and this was like an ongoing saga <laughs> for like two years. It was so silly. And it wasn't until like a complete refurb of that gallery when they'd gotten some like really strong men and some lifting equipment in to shift one of the cases that they realised it was wedged behind the case. Somehow it had gotten thrown on top when something was being taken out and then wow. it had gotten nudged off and it had just been <laughs> between the case <laughs> and the wall for like two years. Did you lie in bed awake at night worrying about what this poor little lugger was going through? <laughs> Mostly when it was embarrassing, uh, embarrassingly time for um, calibration time. And I was just like, and there's one missing. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we know when the collections care conservators looked at the back of their sofas, they're not looking for 20 pences. They're looking for their, their loggers. They yes. are. <laughs> In spirit, if nothing else. Definitely. <laughs> so obviously you can get the ones that are doing the job and sending you the data. And that is lovely if you can afford it. It's very pricey, though. So, yeah. Well, I think if you sort of cost it all in, it doesn't take long for it to be better value. If you're going to do, I don't know, a dozen points of monitoring, like Chloe said, it takes a long time to go collect all those in. And mm. if you start to cost them, you know, if you can get a system, if your IT department would allow you to have a system that will send <laughs> live data, um, it's going to be more pandemic proof, isn't it? In the, you know, you will yeah. hopefully be able to tie in from home. But that's been a really interesting thing from emergency preparedness, mm. hasn't it? Who can check into yeah. their systems from home? In some places, it can be controversial. Just so you're getting the software and you're getting all these loggers and they all have to talk to each other and they have a server and all of that. And you need all that signed off. And then you need to decide how many licenses you're willing to pay for, for people to be able to see the data yeah. and how they see the data. Can they see it from home or can mm. they only see it if they're physically plugged in to the building? And which one is more helpful, honestly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And usually there is a big price difference between these different, shall we say, options. As someone who has, you know, tried to negotiate Negotiate the waters of like what sort of system do we need uh, oh the god it's it's a it's a minefield sometimes when you get it departments involved <laughs> but don't you think it's kind of a tiny bit on the not very nice side of things i mean obviously you pay more for the more loggers you have and you pay more for the more data you store but for the number of access points it does feel like hang on a minute that's our data that we've paid bought the equipment to collect oh yeah and now we've got to pay for us to see yeah. it i oh yeah mm, I, it always makes me a bit uncomfortable that definitely there are interesting ways of squeezing money out of people definitely and they do vary slightly between not only countries but manufacturers and uh, systems as well which is interesting some people are more cloud-based now and other people are still very kind of this is a, a server and it's exists only in this space so if the building burns down so does your data um <laughs> and some things are a bit more old-fashioned digital uh, and some things are a bit more cloud-based but then a lot of the time you know with cloud-based things it's a case of okay so you need a steady internet connection and it doesn't work for everyone and uh, sometimes it can be a thing of okay we well, have to keep paying them to have access to your data etc so Mm, there's so many ways of milking money from people with these things are all companies the same in that respect no no Ooh, we have a head shake <laughs> <laughs> no they aren't there's a fair bit of variety and uh, there are some more perhaps fair uh, solutions than others 
There's a few companies like Hobo, which are really popular in Australia that I haven't really worked with, which is me declaring that by not talking about them, it's not because they're one thing or the other. It's because I haven't sort of Mm. dealt with them um, on a day-to-day basis. But I think there are ethical practices and there are also kind of purchasing buying power stuff that, you know, once you start logging with a particular system, there is an attempt to lock you in, isn't there? It's like the old um, um, Android Mac. Yeah thing isn't it once you've got your charger then your computer you want to speak to your phone and the next thing you know you've gone from buying your kid an iphone to you know replacing every piece of computerware in the house so that you can all interoperable but i think that kind of locked in some of the companies i think might push that a little bit harder in terms of you know that your data's on their software and then what's the maintenance cost because you know if you when I used to do museum advice back in the day, I used to explain that it did. you did have to maintain your system, you know, paying to get the calibration done. Most people can't do their calibration in-house and it's critical. So having the annual, which I guess is what you've got in a couple of days time, an annual mm-hmm. refresh, yeah. you know, that's somebody coming down a couple of days, what with travel and upgrading and taking things away and batteries. And that's really worth it in the same way that you would pay for your car to be serviced. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of it as well. Come and sort it all out for me and then answer the inevitable questions that I've got because I've forgotten what they said last time. <laughs> but separating that then from locked in costs where you're just kind of like, Jenny said, paying to get access to your own data. I mean, we do have to remember, the, yeah, the, these are businesses. They are trying to keep their customers um, sometimes by any means <laughs> because they are trying to continue to make money off you. But, you know, the, it sucks to buy an expensive system and then just have to keep giving money to them i mean that does suck right like that's not just me being an arsehole right that that sucks well i think that's the problem is because you've also got to explain to people why you got to pay for the maintenance and the calibration and stuff so that was in the past you know decades and decades ago when i started all this it was really selling the fact that you had to pay the maintenance money because you would get better data but Mm. i think it's kind of slid now into really saying to people to look at what the ongoing operating costs are and to really, I guess, do that calculation about the value of them mm. to them. And what is what else is offered by the company in terms of like your yearly service and stuff and support costs and stuff. And how they talk to you, you know, if you call them up and say, oh, this is light flashing or there's no light flashing. How do I get it to go back on or something like that? You know, <laughs> I'm wearing this hat and this amber beating people. <laughs> <laughs> You kind of want them to put you through to someone who doesn't mock you, don't you? Who will talk you through in the kindest of ways. You know, because you don't want to like be embarrassed that I don't really have to use this equipment. So I think that's something to look for in a company as well, is how they talk to you if you're a bit technologically challenged. Exactly. But some other people want to call up the company and talk about how they pivot tables and, oh, I can't even think, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Something technical, technical, technical. Yeah, that wasn't very technical, was it? But you know, you know what I mean? Well. I mean, I remember when I first heard about exporting the data from the system into Excel, I was quite impressed. You know, that's going back a long way. But, you know, you might be exporting it into the e-climate notebook or something like that, or, you know, doing other calculations, preservation calculator stuff. So you might kind of like someone who can talk a higher level with you, which, again, not it's not necessarily that one company has all of that or, But some tend to lean one way and some tend to lean the other, I find, in terms of talking the talk and talking down at you somewhere in between us. Or able to do both, I guess, is what you're really Mm. looking for, isn't it? Yeah, ideally. And ideally, kind of knows you well enough uh, by the nervousness in your voice as you phone them (laughs) (laughs) to be able to respond with the correct one. (laughs) So I've not, I've 
only really use the um, sort of data management and analysis software, I suppose, that's provided by my software. I've not messed around with Excel in that respect. So do either of you fancy tech people fancy talking to us about how and why and what is achieved and what is required? I mean, right. So <laughs> I guess I've... I've... <laughs> as a yeah. <laughs> no is fine as well <laughs> what i was gonna don't... say was as an emerging conservator i very much used whatever was supplied if you see what i mean like whatever was on hand and sometimes you know an, an institution might be well grandfathered in on like one particular type of software and these are the loggers they have and mm. this is the software that you've got and you've got to kind of pull pull the data from it and use the graph that it produces and like some people are very rigorous about how they want things done and that's absolutely fine i feel like a lot of my early work was trying to make sense of that sort of thing rather than pull anything out and play with it in excel and then f from there i feel like it's been a mixture of kind of both where some things have required more excel-based approaches and other things have been okay cool the software can handle this it's fine. But it depends on what you're trying to achieve with your data as well. So, you know, for, for some things, I I would say I'm a very basic Excel user. And a lot of what I've used Excel for is when I've had to do manual logging, you know, like I've had to go around and read little displays on little sensors, not get the fancy data sent to, you know, whatever server or cloud. And instead, I've had to actually manually put it into a spreadsheet and then, okay, well, now I would like this to become a graph. And I would like it to tell me about the different kind of environmental swings I've got in these sorts of different parameters and all that stuff, right? That's not super complicated. So, you know, people do amazing things with Excel, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> I think I went a bit more off the deep end with the light logging at one point because of course yes um i went proper mental with that and color-coded stuff and it was very involved it looked beautiful but also it took a lot of time you know sometimes you, you gotta look at how much work you may be putting into something as well and if it's actually worth all that effort or if someone really just wants to know is it just too bright in here yes or no honestly sometimes people just want want that <laughs> That's right. And that's like getting your value for money. And that goes back to, you know, what's mm. frustrating, what's good. What's good is, is getting the right amount of thing out of your system. And I think if you've got like a hodgepodge of different loggers with different companies, then exporting them all to Excel so you can at least get them to overlay and stuff. So you can sort of say this room is worse than this room or whatever. That's quite handy. If you've got like a basic logger, they normally have a basic software. And as long as you can not just have the default setup, which is a bit annoying, um, then you could probably do what you want. The trouble with most of the defaults is that they default to stretch the graph as big as it can be so you can see all the wiggly lines but that then means you have a different scale depending on what's been going on in the gallery mm. so if the default if you can't fiddle with the default at all what will happen is you will always get the kind of most stretched version of the graph and what you don't really want is a graph that's from 47.3 to 56.2 and look like a <laughs> Himalayan you know peak wisdom <laughs> actually it's like absolutely fine um, but because the graph is trying to like really make you happy by giving you wiggles um, it's, it's kind of doing that but then the next month it goes from like 20% relative humidity to 90% and it looks exactly the same in terms of the wiggly lines mm. 
So if you can't fiddle with that, I would. And I would sort of go out, outside because you want to be able to fiddle with the colours. You want to be able to put a label on it saying, I'll oh, wash the floor or roof blew off or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> snowed for three weeks. <laughs> so that at least when you look and say, why was it 0% humidity? It's like snowed for three weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only moisture was coming off our hot chocolate. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's 80% because the river came to visit. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And sometimes even lenders, um, because Chloe was mentioning how Mm. often lenders are saying that they need to see your gallery for the last year. Sometimes, and I would say more and more so, if you've got a good explanation that's not um, a continuous or an embedded problem, if you've got a good explanation of why something happened in that particular month last year, they will still lend it to you if you can sort of promise them that that event won't happen again, you know. So Mm -hmm. new cleaners decided to wash the floor with water or... We invited 400 school children to a fun with aqua <laughs> activity week. I mean, I've, I've literally put that sort of thing in like these sorts of reports where, you know, because sometimes, you know, like a collections manager or something will panic and go, oh, my God, they're asking for our data. Could you pull something together? And usually, you know, I would and it would be a graph and it would be, you know, maybe wigglier than we thought it would be. But we would have the like an idea of, okay, well, it's on that date. Well, we can explain that by this. And I would put it into context. And I would always reassure them that it's the context that matters, right? It's obviously a one-off. <laughs> and no, we're not going to do that bit again. We're not going to have a slip and slide indoors again. <laughs> it was a bad idea the first time. <laughs> I like I like the slip and slide. It's just you don't want it to go with your watercolor impressionist yeah. in the Watercolors and water fun <laughs> at the Museum of High Risk. <laughs> so yeah, I, I like the ones that you can do that much. Change the color, change the scale, put labels on. If you can do that, then I'm you know I think for a lot of basic applications, that's as much as people will want to do. Some people want to look at the dew point. I kind of like that stuff because I'm on the nerd end of these things but you know you don't you don't need to get in at that level that is not an entry level <laughs> addiction so, you know so if you've got like six different systems and they're not doing what you want then export them to excel but there's also a couple of products that you can get that you can drop your data into which I mentioned and I guess Jenny will do show notes and I, the, probably the biggest one is eClimate notebook so you can put from their loggers, you can have their software or you can pay to use their system and put your data in. So this is where you've got your CSV data. And most loggers will have a CSV export and then you can sort of pop them into another place and do like more fun. With the eClimate notebook, you have to pay a subscription, you know, the more you put in and, and that sort of thing. But it's pretty um, dependent on how big you are. It doesn't just have a big mm-hmm. cliff. Oh, scales, basically. Yeah, okay. So it doesn't start as hugely expensive if you look at it in the scheme of things. But the other one that's come on to the market, I've just been seeing, is Conserve. Have you seen them? But a part of their new company man is that they're allowing you to use their software with your data. So you don't, you kind of don't have to buy in. Oh, I see. And then they scale you up with like all these other things that you want. Like, would you like to have PIs? Yes, I do want PIs. But what they're offering offering you seems to me to be more functionality rather than more and more people can look at it. So it's kind of less like pay us more to see you on data and pay us more for us to do more cool things with your numbers. That's how I get it. Obviously, they haven't been around for long and they're not yet properly launched in Europe. So it is an experimental thing, but I think it's a really interesting one to watch. Yeah, I mean, it feels like maybe we're now getting to the point where we have more reasonable tools. Actually, we have talked to Conserve. 
uh, I'm Austin Sensman. I'm one of the founders of Conserve. And our mission is to bring better preventive conservation tools to the collection scare space. There are lots of little everyday hassles that go into this work. And we've started with environmental monitoring as, as the first tool we're going to work on. We're building a platform that's a little bit bigger. We just launched an integrated pest management tool as well, and we'll work on other things. Uh, our goal is not just to do monitoring, but to be a, a platform for preventive conservation, which is really exciting. No one's ever done this before. Yeah. Uh, really. So, you know, the number one question we get, because we're relatively new, and my team mostly doesn't have a collections care background. So, probably the number one question we get from folks is, how did you get into this? Or why are you doing this? Yeah. Or tell me a little bit about your background. You know, it's like, this seems kind of random. And like, like, how did this start? You know, like, how do you get into this if you're not already like one of the nerds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My background is in analytics. And I did consulting work in that area for many years. And that's really like going into organization and saying, it's possible to have data, but not have information. Mm. Uh, Nathan, my partner, he's an engineer. He builds hardware, he builds software, he can do a lot of different things. Well, and, you know, we teamed up to find an interesting business to work on. And we looked at lots of different things. And, oh, you know, Nathan's mom happens to be an objects conservator. Ooh. <laughs> uh, and so at some point, we're in a museum. And, yeah. and, you know, she's showing us how they do monitoring. And we looked at lots of different things and nothing really grabbed our attention. But this did. We got introductions to folks in New York. And we went to New York and we visited with lots of places that had plenty of resources and, and plenty of nice stuff. And we kind of saw the same thing everywhere. And people told us, we have the money to buy better things. We just don't really have better things to buy. And so mm. that was kind of the beginning of the business. And that was twenty, the very beginning of 2019, so about, about two years ago. Wow. So that's really cool that you started like by um, by being introduced by a family member, in a way, to the museum world. That's super cool. Right. So what is it that you actually do at Conserve? What is, so you, you are, let's say collections care platform but what does that mean just to zoom in and talk about monitoring because that's where we started and that's that's still our core product and so we went and talked to hundreds of people who just kind of work and we asked them what's working for you now what's not working and what we heard is that data collection is still kind of a hassle in most places this is more true i think in the u.s but in the U.S., there's really not a lot of wireless monitoring mm. uh, going on. Okay. And I would say even in Europe, most people still don't have wireless monitoring, but a significant plurality of people do. Uh, most of the big places do have wireless monitoring, and but then it becomes a money issue. Of course, it usually is, isn't it? So it, it depends on how much budget you have to splash out on this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we looked at that, and that's what we heard from people, right? We don't have it because it's a money issue. And we we came to the perspective that that's not true um, and that wireless was a problem for people because it was largely based on Wi-Fi, which is just a really uh, ill-suited technology for this. You know, you're familiar with Wi-Fi. It doesn't really make it to the end of your house. And, and then you take a larger, more complicated building. You know, I was going to say, then, you, then you're in a historic building with thick stone walls and then you'll never get signal ever. Right, right. It just doesn't work. And so then you end up having to spend a lot of money like putting Wi-Fi coverage throughout the space and like why would you even put that in your storage space no one's even in there and mm. you spend all that money and you get it set up and then the batteries only last three months and <laughs> you know the wi-fi password changes and the whole thing stops working and you know there's just a lot of problems with it um so that was really interesting so we went out and found a technology called uh laura wan l-o-r-a-w-a-n 
long range wide area network and it's just a little different it's long range as the name sort of signifies and the battery life is great the trade-off is it only sends really small amounts of data but for what we're doing isn't that just fine you know we're sending like eight numbers every 10 or 15 minutes and we're not trying to stream netflix yeah so we found a technology where you just sort of plug it in and it works you don't have to worry about wi-fi you don't have to worry about any of that and so that was like the first thing that we solved for people Here's a relatively inexpensive thing, no IT department required. You just plug it in, it just works. And all of a sudden, all that time that you're doing, you know, walking around getting data out of these things, that just goes away completely. That was the beginning of the value proposition, right? Which is like, how much time are you spending doing that? And it turns out people aren't spending an enormous amount of time. It turns out that people just aren't doing it very often because... Because it's hassle. It's a hassle. Yes, you might do it once a month. And then, you know, you hear sort of inevitably, oh, look, we had an issue two weeks ago. There's no feedback loop to make progress or there's not a quick feedback loop. So but that's like just the first part, you know, like that just now people might have better data, but there's still this large question of what do you do with it? And so we quickly started working on analysis. You know, if people even people who had wireless, they still probably didn't have an analysis tool that was built for collection care. Right. You sort of get these generic tools that people are trying to build a tool that works for um, museums, science labs, restaurants, pool maintenance companies, self-storage. It's got to work for everyone. It's a generic kind of tool. Yeah. So we thought, okay, well, you know, and there's some examples of tools that do this. Like in the States, we have eClimate Notebook, which is uh, from the Image Permanence Institute. But then outside of that, it's pretty sparse. And so we just went and sat down with people and said, how do you do your analysis? Basically, like, bring out your spreadsheets. Let us see. Were people happy to do that or were they a bit embarrassed? Uh, well, I mean, I've I've been like the spreadsheet therapist for many years. Anyway, <laughs> so it's sort of my natural kind of like, no judgment here, like progress, not perfection. Like, yeah. let's take a look. So from there, you know, we started trying to build an experience that produces the things people want to see without a lot of fuss. So, you know, simple stuff. I mean, it, some of this isn't terribly complicated, but it's like, I would like my RH to be between 50 and 70%. And I really don't want to fluctuate more than 10% in a 24-hour period. Okay, great. What percentage of the time are you within those levels? And just be able to look at it and say, oh, you know, we were 75% compliant this month. It's really a balance between respecting the complexity of it, but creating some numbers that can be the drivers of conversations because you know this work doesn't get solved alone it's always a team yeah a team sport yeah so that's what we tried to do there and from there it's like you know collect the data make it pretty straightforward to analyze are we doing well are we not are we improving are we not and then the third thing was you know the ability to communicate it with people so you know unlimited users on the platform invite anybody lots of different ways to share things with people because that was the thing that we started talking about is that you guys have a free platform and we're all immediate like, oh my God, a free platform? That doesn't happen. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of what we're doing, it's not altogether new, like in the larger world of software. We're sort of expressing a lot of trends of the last 20, 10 and five years, but just in the space. So like, it's increasingly common now. I mean, all my favorite software that I use, it has a free version and it's not some watered down thing. It's like a real, it's a pretty good free tool. Yeah. And then companies will stack much more valuable things on there that are paid versions. And we thought that just fit really well in this space. I mean, we're committed to access and so increasing like high quality tools and in people's hands and having a really great free version that exists. Um, 
It just gets you more uses, doesn't it? Well, it does, but it also creates a really high bar for us. If we're going to ask someone to pay for something, it's got to be something really cool that really drives a lot of value to them. The basic thing is free, and then you can get things that you pay for, essentially. The basic thing is totally free. And like the way we do it is, I think, unique as well. Like We've changed the model a little bit where the software is free, but you can't just get access to it anymore. We're going to like spend 30 minutes onboarding you onto the software, mm. which is like, this is crazy. How do you guys have the time or make money doing this? And what we found is there's some things that if you do up front consistently – just one time, you get a lot more value later, right? Like if you really explicitly set the different levels for your spaces, right? Like I want the RH to kind of be here, the temperature here for the galleries and my storage like this. Set your spaces up right, like here are the different spaces in my collection. And, you know, here's make sure your address is in there for your location so the weather data comes in. If you do all these things at the beginning, you get a lot more value out of the tool. And so we help people do that. It's like very much geared toward tailoring it to you so you can get the full value of it. Now, and of course, we're also going to ask you, are you interested in buying environmental monitoring equipment in the next six to 12 months? I mean, you know, we're, there is a business angle to it. Yes. And, <laughs> and if the answer is no, that's fine. Like, we're going to treat you just like we treat everyone else. Yeah. But another aspect of this is like people aren't going and buying monitoring equipment necessarily every year. You know, maybe you just bought a bunch of stuff last year and maybe you'll buy again in three, four or five years. And so part of the free model, too, is we, we want to be adding value to you, whether you're a paying customer or not. Um, and when the time comes, you think, oh, I need some monitoring. And we have this good relationship built around us giving a lot that you know, we hope people think about think of us. Yeah. So out of curiosity, so you're based in North America. Do you do you have customers in Europe or are you planning to have customers in Europe or the rest of the world? We just got our CE certification done about a month ago. Ooh. And we shipped our first European orders a couple of weeks ago. So that's going well. And those are all uh, we're sort of framing those as pilots. Uh, we want to make sure things work right in Europe. The frequencies are different. Some things are different. Sure, yeah. You know, we've got all set up for GDPR. Like, is that working the way we, we want it to? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And Anna Martins, who's on our advisory board, she was a conservation scientist at MoMA for many years. And she's retired and she moved to the Netherlands at the beginning of the year. So she's in Europe as well. And she's helping set up these early relationships. So for folks that are listening in Europe, absolutely could connect you with Anna. It's great because like she understands our technology really well. And she's, you know, she's been doing this work for for a few decades. Like I love having these people on our team. It just, it helps us build a better product. And it also helps us just connect with people and serve people better. So what else is in the pipeline? You mentioned pest monitoring. So this is definitely a version of show me your spreadsheets, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. Uh, because with IPM, everyone's doing this on a spreadsheet. Not everyone, but essentially everyone. So so we thought, wow, if there are spreadsheets, then there's software to be built. It's sort of the way to think about it. Mm. So we just launched this in the platform uh, at the beginning of April. Mm -hmm. And it's a very early version. You know, The idea is to bring everything into one place so that it's easy to do this workflow, which is like go and collect... Uh, observations. So that could either be a picture of a trap or like, you know, hey, I saw this thing. Um, and then to flow into uh, identifying things. So looking at a trap and saying, you know, there are three carpet beetles on here and this. We've partnered with museumpest.net in the US and they have a big pest database. Yeah. And we've brought that database into the platform. So it's sitting there right next to you as you're trying to do this work. So a big picture of the, you know, the trap this highly detailed pest database, and you can sort of 
piece it together there. And I don't know if you talked about this with Jane, but on the analytics side, we were inspired by her and, and Christian's best occurrence index. Oh, yeah, they're um, amazing. And so on the analytics side, we're, we've brought the pest occurrence index in there. And and again, this sort of sits on the same free tool. And we haven't taken this next logical step yet, but you'll see it later this year, which is to be able to look at your pest analytics and environment analytics together, clearly like the environment in a space. Yeah. So all these things begin to sort of um, build on each other. Yeah. It's really fun. Oh, that's super cool. I look forward to that. That's great. When we think about environmental monitoring, we're trying to reframe it a little bit. I think about like lowercase e and capital E. And for me, like capital E is like just the total environment. It's more like the agents of deterioration. So it's not just temperature and RH, but your pests are part of your environment. Yeah. You know, like the cleaning routine, part of the environment. Like, And so I think that's probably the transition we're making is from that lowercase e, which is like temperature, relative humidity, light into the uppercase E, which is, is sort of the larger set of challenges. Yeah, I like it. That's that's a good way of thinking about it. Where, where can people find you if they want to go and find out more? It's We've really simplified this recently. So our website, Conserve, by the way, C-O-N-S-E-R-V, no E on the end. <laughs> so it's conserve.io. And people are like, what's up with the .io? Well, it's hard to get a .com email address, okay? Yeah, it is. It's, it's 2021. <laughs> Everyone's squatting on all of them, so... Um, so conserve.io, if you go to our website, uh, all over the website on the various pages, there's a simple field where you can put in your email address and say, get started. And that kicks off everything with us. If you go to that, there's a quick survey. We just want to learn a little bit more about your collection. What are you doing now? What's working? What's not working? Mm-hmm. And from there, someone from our team is going to find some time to onboard you onto the free tools. Well, do check it out if you think you're in need of something like this. And thank you so much for talking to us today. So talking about um, software, this is this is one of those, I'm afraid, dead-end Chloe inputs that I have looked at or tried to start looking at uh, a mobile apps okay. that you can do this stuff from. And I didn't get very far because then I got annoyed when I realized that I do get very annoyed when somebody's job requires them to have a smartphone and which museum Mm, provides a smartphone for their people to use. So I didn't go any further with that, but I know that Hanwell have one. I mean, this is this is very one sided because I didn't do it properly. Um, Lapka. I think, but I don't think that that's a museum one. That's just, Lapka turns your iPhone into an environmental monitoring station and it's all very wood effect and fancy and and seems to be talking about radiation levels and things like that. So I don't have any extra information because I haven't looked at it properly, but it seems that there's quite a lot of kind of input into what you can do on your phone and stuff. And I actually looked into, I started looking into this because I wanted to know whether there are new apps that allows your phone to be an environmental monitor because I've used them before in the past but like six years ago or something and the technology was rubbish and it just didn't work I tried to calibrate it or at least you know at the very least work out how wrong it was and even that didn't didn't sort of show me anything so that's something else I want to look into because then you can have something that you can carry around with you in maybe a large site 
And so you don't have to always go and have a look at your environmental monitoring system in order to see if there's a problem. If you, you know, walk into a space and go, it feels damp in here, which I've definitely done. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, good point. And I would love for smart technology to, you know, be advanced and reliable enough for that to be a thing. Because I... I love spot checking, um, but the spot checking devices, they are, when they're a standalone device, they are horrendously expensive, like eye-wateringly expensive, because I want one that does everything. Like, I want <laughs> the one that does the Lux and the UV, and it's like, so much money! It's like, nearly £600 without that, and it's just like... Oh, oh wow oh. it just makes me sad i didn't know how much they cost actually all i knew was the sort of air of absolute reverence that so we're on video uh video chat with jane at the moment which is rare because we normally uh, stop it we just <laughs> like chatting so much um <laughs> she's now got the the monitor out that i was just about to say turned up with a sort of air of reverence in one yes. of my past jobs and you know people opened the box and the box was all soft inside it's like ooh, yes that's the it very is. box jane <laughs> it's slightly squishy there's a closed cell foam in there it's very nice and that's where what 600 pounds gets you do you want to explain the two gadgets that you were holding up just then jane? so well jenny was saying that they cost a lot but I would, because I've always advised um, pretty much in Wales, I mean, I've done other places as well, but I would say if you are getting into environmental logging, the first thing you do if you're really low budget is those little white ones that are like, that you would get for a baby's bedroom or for a greenhouse. Mm, Yeah, yeah. My living room. I have several of those. 30, 40 UK pounds. And just, and you know, you just buy them and you don't expect them to last. But if you go anything up from that, so as soon as you get a decent little logger that's about 100 UK pounds, then your calibration, your accuracy is quite important because you're going to buy three of them and then you're running them for a year and collecting all the data. So you really do need to know if they're any good. And the easier way to check if a £100 one is any good is to have one of the three or £400 ones that come with a calibration kit. That's my pitch. So you have to get the ones with a decent sensor. You know the one where you look inside and you can see that little silicon chip when you peer in mm-hmm. through the, yeah, this, you can see it sideways there. You would need to know whether you're going to go to a super cold when you chose because, you know, some of them are a bit temperature sensitive. And then these ones you can calibrate and I would really invest them as soon as you're beyond three greenhouse ones. As soon as you get beyond that, I would say get the money, even if you have to share it between like two or three museums and get one of the ones with the calibration kit, spend the money and do it because we're going to play a game. What's older, my logger <laughs> or you? <laughs> so should we should we describe what this logger looks like? This is not the one that came out of the fancy box with the clippy clip. This one looks like a walkie-talkie. It looks like a 1980s mobile phone. Oh, Oh, it's come out of a very large case. The clips probably sound really good on that one as well. The antenna is... Oh, it folds away. I love it. The antenna is as long as the the unit and it's got a little screen. It's I'm going to call it early 90s tech grey. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. I do have an older one, but it's in my locked down office. So this is the oldest one I could find in the house. <laughs> so I guess we have to ask all the listeners, what year were they born? And was it before or after 1995? 1995! Wow. Got this in 94, but I didn't calibrate until 95. I mean, wow. It's so of its time, isn't it? You can, you can kind of see that museum tech was like not, it wasn't a priority for it to look sexy yet. 
But it's still, I check this all the time. It's still really accurate. You know, I, I got this in a job. I left that job. It stayed in the job. That organization folded. The building was evacuated. I drove up there on the last day that they were open, picked it back up again. <laughs> oh, it's a love story. <laughs> it's like Jane Eyre. <laughs> I've got all sorts of things that took them back because they didn't want them because they were going in the skip and who wants reuse and I've been using them I've let students use them I've taken them on courses and it's still accurate so I think Jenny it's earned its 200 pounds or 400 pounds in UK today I mean, money nice work you? I, I like that <laughs> I think so for a true conservation romance definitely <laughs> so I think it is worth spending the money with the little ones the the little ones I would say you use them until they start working and then you mm. probably chuck them out so you might feel you know this is where you get into sustainability and your sustainability purchasing discussions you know do you get fewer better that you hope will last longer do you get the cheaper ones that you can get a good coverage and then maybe upgrade over every year till you've got a decent set but knowing that they're basically disposable electrics mm. yeah that's a fair point so we're into principles of data collection now. <laughs> you look, have never looked happier to say those words. <laughs> See, it's always the same with me. You've got to set a research question. So what is it uh -huh. you want to know? So really, ideally, you don't arrive at the museum and they say, here's the, the horrible set of mismatched loggers that you've inherited. <laughs> <laughs> and don't disturb the bats in the gallery. And uh, the river running through the stories in it um, is, uh, yeah, it's protected. Then... <laughs> But if you don't have that, if you actually have a choice, then you should sit down and think, well, what do I actually want to know? So do it like, you know, when you were a student, you had to write an essay or you did a plan or you did a project. You actually should sit down and do that. Because if you sit down and say, what I want to know is, is has the door been left open? But if what you just want to know is, is the chair in there okay? Mm -hmm. Then you just put it near the chair. So, and a lot of the time we just kind of want reassurance, seeking the happiness. We just want to know that thing's probably all right. So if we know roughly what all right is and what all right isn't, then we just need a logger that's good enough to do that for us. So if it's a big, massive piece of furniture and you're not able to get on site very often and it's got big stone walls, so it's really rubbish at sending you telemetric messages, then you just want something diddy that you can tuck in underneath it, go and check it, you know. Then it's going to be size, it's going to be the massive storage of data, that sort of thing that you're going to do. Um, and this is where having a software notebook system mm. that you can pull in different loggers might become attractive. A lot of us people have just got like just one museum or a museum and a store and they can roughly put all the same loggers in. And the big decision is, do you have like a yellow one that you can find or a discrete one that you can't? The ones I like about the yellow ones that they've got a screw hole so you can screw them into things. Trouble with the white ones is how stealable they are, isn't it? Mm, yeah. That is something that I was considering as I was annoyed with myself lugging around my massive stepladder around with me yesterday. I was thinking, well, at least no one else can reach these if I can't reach these. Okay, so you guys put them high up. That's kind of what I'm taking away. Yeah, these are high up. But then I think that's because our one of the reasons that we look carefully is because we have quite a lot of open mm, display yeah. textiles and the top of them is pretty yeah. high, usually like five meters, six meters high. So putting a, a logger in the middle of that is still out of reach, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, that's fair. That's interesting because I, I think... I ended up kind of doing some that were out in galleries and then they were kind of on top of doorways so that mm -hmm. they were kind of so, so high up that 
you would have to really, really try and you would get caught before you managed to succeed. (laughs) (laughs) People don't tend to look in places like that, though. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, But it also means that people visiting the galleries who are also collections care staff can peer at the numbers if there's visible numbers and then go, oh, it's nice in here. It's my favorite thing to do in museums now. And friends and family. I mean, as soon as lockdown ends and we can get back in, we'll be able to drag our children and exactly. partners and parents and say, look, and look point at, at the monitors. <laughs> yeah. What are you looking at the painting for? There's a logo. <laughs> I guess I fall into the trap of like basic environmental monitoring to me. It's like, okay, so I'm worried about relative humidity Mm -hmm. and I'm worried about temperature. Mm -hmm. And as a bonus additional layer to the onion, I'll go like, oh, I worry about UV and I worry about lux levels. I'm particularly concerned about lux levels because that's the thing that I can change. And then beyond that, it's just like here be dragons when people start thinking about pollutants (laughs) and I don't know. It's just... Don't you do vibration monitoring then, Jenny? No, never have. People have asked me about it and I'm like, I know literally nothing about vibration monitoring and I feel bad because there are bound to be people who are very knowledgeable about it. But no, never have. I think that I've been told and I've been involved in somebody else doing vibration monitoring. And so it is in my mind when I look at an object that moves sometimes, I think, what can I do about that? As for gallery pollutants, I've been told that we have filters in our air system and I know that they are changed. One of the things that came up in the webinar was basically that people have a lot of perceptions of like basically constraints for their environmental monitoring. So it's stuff like, well, there's no point in checking because I can't do anything about it. Like that's a common mindset that people really need to get out of. It kind of intersects with that where it's... Uh, stuff that I fret about that I think I can change versus things I fret about that I think I can't change. Which Because you mentioned that you can change light levels, Chloe, uh, which is yes. you know, in and of itself interesting. So that's something that you feel like you can control. It's something you can worry about and you can control. I could, yeah, I love my lights. It's it's one of the things that I love very much about my galleries. <laughs> As for maybe this, for me, falls into the territory of, okay, maybe I should worry about pollutants, but what can I do about it anyway? But I, I wonder if there's a certain amount of, like, it's more about the psychology of this than the actual science. What do you think, Jane? You're nodding in a, in a, I'm ready for this kind of way. No, well, it's like the light is really satisfying, isn't it? Because it's like mm. doing a diet without having to forego crisps because. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, you can turn down the light level, feel very satisfied that you've, you know, saved and generally got all the sort of good feedback emotionally that you would get from going for a run. But all you've actually done is just tip the lamp. So that's a really positive thing. And then you can sort of manage your humidity. You can normally control and you can sort of troubleshoot and forensically investigate events. And that's quite exciting. But I think we are going to do better with pollution because, again, COVID, because of Mm -hmm. ventilation rates. Because we're going to go back to looking at ventilation rates. A lot of the safety people will start just saying, let's just ventilate more Mm -hmm. to save to be safe, you know, mm-hmm. and then we're going to be saying, well, no, because we want to reuse the air because we don't want to consume energy cleaning it and humidifying it. So I think then we will get into like how much ventilation do we need? And the best way to do that is with your carbon dioxide monitoring. So I think this is going to come back in as a thing. 
so that we can sort of be juggling a little bit in terms of our energy use and our safety and our fresh air intake. So I think, you know, if you've got a building management system, if you're paying money for filtration and things like that, probably you do want to know if you're paying for actually results that you're actually getting. And you probably also want to be able to dial up and dial down depending on the number of visitors on based off sensors. The reason that I always think of you as, apart from the fact that obviously this is your specialism, but I always think of you when I go into galleries and museums because there is an umbrella stand at the door. Do you want to explain the umbrella stand or... In terms of environmental control, there is a lot that you can do. But I always want to, I always when I talk about it, want to start at the beginning. And that is with a doormat and an umbrella stand. Again, I can't help but talking about the fact I live in Wales and we are a country with no shortage of rain. (laughs) Unlike others. <laughs> so we do have to. And in fact, Narbeth Museum, which is very near where Jenny is, have an umbrella stand that I have photographs of for decades. And even when they moved, they took the umbrella stand with them. And then I sneaked in once when my kids were in a theme park nearby. And I sneaked into the museum to look around. And I was just trying to sneak around and look around like a museum on my own. And so I went, oh, you're Jane Henderson. Come and see our umbrella stand. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Oh, my umbrella stand. (laughs) I never go through a light. But I just love, you know, the fact that you don't have to always spend money, that there Mm. are these things. And I think that's what kind of what we need to connect up a little bit. It goes back to your, you know, why are we collecting the data? If what you're trying to do is get rid of the really damp spots and you find out it's on a rainy day, then you've just got to stop the rain from coming in. So, you know, is that fixing the roof? Is that putting an umbrella stand in? People would like an umbrella stand. There was, um, but there was a, there's a culture, you know, about like leaving your door closed that you don't have to have the door wedged open, and you can have it, you know, leave your umbrellas mm, in the way in and yeah. things like that. To sort of, we've got weather. We don't have to bring it inside. We can use traditional methods like doormats and closing the door. But we've kind of got into this weird thing of if the door's not propped open, then you can't be open, sort of thing. Makes me so sad from a sustainability point of view. Not every country does the same, but... um, We have started, or at least in the last period of museum opening, we did start opening our doors, but leaving our doors open so people didn't have to touch Mm. um, door handles. And we did think this was one of those, like, we're going to have to compromise on this. Hopefully it won't be forever. Um, But COVID times, and I suppose extra ventilation in that respect as well. But... Keeping the weather out and the environmental controls in is very much a mood. Always tweet me pictures of umbrella stands from anywhere. I don't mind. So this feels like a good time to um, listen to my interview with Michael from Miko. Um, Miko is the provider of the environmental monitoring system that I use, and I definitely don't use it to its the extent of its capabilities. But let's listen to what he has to say. Hi everyone. So I'm here with the provider of my environmental monitoring system, Miko. So would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Michael Hall uh, and I am the uh, director and co-owner of Miko Measurement and Control Limited. Thank you so much for speaking to us. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. It's, been, it's only been two years. I know. So this is the, actually the first face-to-face interview I've done for a years now because of COVID. Um, we're distanced and it's all very safe, but Paul Michael's been waiting for the museum to be open for us to <laughs> calibrate our, our system properly for about, it's been a year now, hasn't it? 
No, two, two years, years now. Yeah, it's been oh. two years now. So yeah. thanks very much for coming in. That's <laughs> just been a while. It's like, it's still going. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's all right. I've been checking it. Yeah, it went good. down a bit, but <laughs> that was our fault, not yours. <laughs> it's IT for you. Yeah. My first question is, how did your work with Miko begin? And do you want to tell us a bit about the company and how it started? Okay, so this, this is not a very well-known fact. I kind of fell into the job in 2003. So I didn't start the company. There was a chap called Chris Michael who founded Miko in 1993. He, he basically came up with an environmental monitoring system, first radio telemetry environmental Ooh. monitoring system way back then. Uh, I, I just applied for a job. I was just after a sales job at the time. Um, started working for Chris as like a, a sales manager. Three years later, he offered us museum side of his business. And so Samantha and I, um, she's the other co-owner, we went to the pub, had a few beers to, to discuss, mm-hmm. you know, could we do this? We went back to Chris and said, yes, we'll, we'll do it. And at that point, we were down in Cranley in Surrey. And so we said yes. And then the September of that year, we took over the business and moved it up to Staffordshire. And um, so now we, we concentrate on environmental monitoring for museums, libraries, archives and stately homes. Um, and and that, that's all we concentrate on. We don't do, we do, we do do it in the industry, but it's museum focused. Mm-hmm. It's Brilliant. great. Love it. Brilliant. Um, so what do you provide as Miko? We provide museums and libraries and archives the tools to monitor your environment and then after that, once you know what your conditions are like, we can provide you with kit to help control your environment. Because uh, we get lots of people ringing up saying, I need a humidifier or a dehumidifier. And then they suddenly realise, well, actually, I don't know if I need one of those because I've got no data to back mm-hmm. it up. Mm-hmm. So one of our things is always do your monitoring first and see if you actually need any control equipment. Mm-hmm. So we provide data loggers, which are a nice, cheap and easy way to get into the get into monitoring. We provide Wi-Fi loggers and we provide our own radio telemetry system to mm-hmm. monitor your environment. We cover a broad spectrum, so it could be from a national organisation down to a small volunteer-run organisation. Mm-hmm. We deal with everybody and we, and we like dealing with music people because they're really friendly and nice. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> You are, you're, you're, the, you're, you're, the nicer, you're nicer customers than you are dealing with members of the public or industry. Mm-hmm. Much nicer. Hear that, everyone, we're nice. Yeah. <laughs> and preventive conservatives are the best. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all do preventive conservatives, do a hair flick. Yeah. Everybody, oh. there we go. <laughs> so that means also you provide the software and also the support. And as you are coming in today for us, um, you are calibrating and setting up and cleaning up and what are you doing? <laughs> yes. So part of our... You were brushing something when I came in. Just yeah, so you, you had a bit of a, a leaky battery in one of your battery packs. And part of our service with our kit, our radio telemetry kit, is that we, we do provide a service plan or mm-hmm. a, you want to call it an extended warranty, similar to an extended warranty, mm-hmm. where I will come in on an annual basis, I will do a calibration and adjustment. That's important, not just a calibration. <laughs> um, so your sensors actually get adjusted so that they stay accurate mm-hmm. rather than just, oh yeah, 10% out and they stay 10% out. That defeats the object. So you get a calibration, an adjustment, a service, repairs. Uh, if there's any updates to your software, you'll get your software updated. 
Um, and that's all part of it. And you can, if you wanted to, contact us at midnight to say, how do I do this? <laughs> that's fine, because we'll, we, we will respond. So many cultural institutions, as you've already outlined, are sometimes working on very limited budgets. What would you suggest for the small organisations who are struggling with their environmental conditions? Don't panic. Oh, that's a good one. Don't panic. Everybody is in the same boat. Everybody has their own environmental monitoring, environmental problems. Everybody has fluctuating humidity, fluctuating temperatures. It doesn't matter if you're a big national museum or a small volunteer organisation. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in the same boat. And I've seen the data, so I know. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there are places that you think, oh, they should have perfect conditions. They're not. So everybody suffers from the same thing. First thing to do is if you, if you, you start doing some monitoring, it's mm-hmm. not expensive to get a data logger. They're like £99 mm-hmm. and you could get a data logger that will actually prove to you what is happening in your environment 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can have that as a graph that you can send to somebody and say, look, these are the conditions, help. You've got um, museum development officers, speak to them because you can normally get free kit from them. They'll, cool. They can provide you with a data logger or cool. some tools. Um, I think Lindsay Jones is the MDO for that I know up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a good team uh, good West Midlands development officers, they're a good team, so there's four of them, I think it's four of them, uh, and they go out and they will help you help you sort your problems out, They'll get you monitoring kit for it, data loggers, handheld, uh, and just give you advice. So I think when I spoke to you two years ago about um, how about interviewing on the SeaWorld podcast, I thought of this because you said something interesting about a fish tank. Yeah, I use, I, it's, I hate this word, pragmatic. <laughs> I use a I have two fish tanks in the office for calibration mm-hmm. ah and I have I think it's magnesium hydroxide or something in there in those tanks to maintain a, a steady humidity of 53% mm-hmm. only because the office environment is the temperature is the same hum- as the humidity it's 22 degrees right so it's really dry and it's, it's not ideal for calibrating kit so mm-hmm. I have two fish tanks that with this stuff in it and it maintains 53%. They're thereabouts. If I'm doing a, a calibration at a mm-hmm. sensible humidity, everything goes in there and gets calibrated. Uh, obviously, you can use the reference instrument. I also, I've upped my game a little bit as well. Cool. So I've got a big plastic Tupperware box where I can seal it so I can make a good seal. So if mm-hmm. you put soup in it, it's not going to come out. Yeah. Um, and I've got, I think it's lithium chloride so I can get the humidity down to 11%. I see. And then I've also, I can't remember what the substance is. <laughs> um, I've got, it's up to 88%. Oh, I see. Right. So you've got different environments. So you've got different environments of known, known humidity. So if I'm doing a, a three-point calibration, mm-hmm. obviously I, it, to save me carrying around, because I do have a, a portable humidity chamber where I mm-hmm. can generate different mm-hmm. humidities, I'll use, my, I'll use a, a hydroclip like you've got here. I'll use one of those uh, because they're really good at all humidities. Mm-hmm. They're really accurate. So that's my reference. They're my reference instruments. And then I can compare, I can basically do a calibration of the sensors at mm-hmm. different humidity and you get your three-point calibration. So that's, that's, uh, that's like an easy way of doing it. Right. So I asked Jane in advance of our recording a couple of days ago, what questions would she ask you? And she came up with loads of really good ones and I've tried to select the ones that I think are 
um, the best for this. So her first question was, what's the most inaccurate you found a logger before calibrating? I Please s- don't say one of mine. No, 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 you're <laughs> all right. Um, I won't say it's a logger. You know the big jumbo displays you can get? Yes. Those. Right, ah, interesting. Terrible. You mean, you, you, these things you can pick them up from B&Q, um, and we got some, um, and they just pretty much, we gave them away because they were bad. They um, were bad, they're like 10% out. Oh, I see. That's out of the packet. Yeah. It's not, you know, they haven't been anywhere. You're like, oh my God, these are terrible. Can't use those. Because we, we try, you know, everything we try and sell, or do, is at least no no more than plus minus 3%. Mm. And when you 10% out of the box, it's like, oh my God, what a pile of junk. <laughs> And so we've seen, I've seen those. Okay. So I don't, I do not trust them as far as I can throw. Loggers, I've seen over time. I've seen some maybe fifteen-year-old data loggers that are maybe seven percent. Okay. So it's not too bad. By comparison, that's not too bad. It's not too bad at all. What's the longest you've ever found a logger left without power? Okay, um, a logger, I've seen loggers that are probably what five years without power. Mm. I can go one better than that. I've seen a whole system to this was two years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, again, I'm no. not going to name names. Found the login computer, turned it on, Windows 2000. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. That was like, oh my God, it's Windows 2000. Vintage. Yeah, it was a vintage, vintage, vintage system. And it hadn't been working this whole time. No, they just didn't even know they knew they had it. Ah, I see, I see. They know they had sensors, they didn't know what it was for. Mm -hmm. So I'd gone over to do a survey and like, okay, so you've got sensors, where is the receiver and where would be the computer? So we went through all the offices, all the spaces and one end of the building, this tiny cupboard. Okay, there's the receiver, there's the computer, old cathode ray monitor. (laughs) Turned it on and up comes Windows 2000. It's like, bloody hell. This hasn't been on for years. So, yeah, I'd probably, that's probably what, at least 17 years. Yeah. It hadn't been running because nobody knew about it. And that's the problem when people leave, they don't Mm -hmm. tell anybody what they've got. Mm. (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) 17 years then. 17 years. So finally, then, what's the funniest place you've ever found a logger? This is it's not, strictly speaking, it's not a logger. It's a little bit old school. It's out in Cairo. I've got two actually. Oh please! Out in Cairo with the late great Bob Childs, uh, we were doing a job out there together, uh, and as we're having a walk around, there's this scrap metal dealer just on the streets. It's a big pile of old electronics and things uh, and as we walk past he looks at the top and he goes what's that up there uh, and obviously the, the, the seller that comes out what's that can we have a look at that up there please and he sort of scrambles up the pile of electronics and pulls out an old chart thermohygrograph wow and uh, oh my god that's worth a fortune <laughs> like 500 quid and he's just uh, you want to buy it and we're like no thank you <laughs> <laughs> see you later um, so that was a good one. Um, didn't expect to see one of those in a million years in you know street market in Egypt. And then the other one is, was actually underneath a snail. 
Pardon? <laughs> we had a customer. Um, she knows who she is. Um, it had a transmitter, one of the radio transmitters, underneath a snail. As in a living snail or a model snail? And or the, a... the snail had died on top of the transmitter. Oh no. Oh, I see. Okay. It's a poor snail just sitting there in a store. Don't know how it got there. <laughs> just this little snail shell. Yeah, there was much hilarity and um, much photoshopping went on with that one. <laughs> But that's it. Otherwise, it normally it's very boring. Right. On a wall, above a door. Normal places. Normal places. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's put one in like a, a, a hippo's mouth or anything like that. That's a shame. I know. So anyone with a large hippo in their yeah, museum well, collection, try and monitor the environmental conditions in the hippo's mouth, potentially. Make cro- Michael happy. Crocodile, lion. Everybody's got a yeah, lion. Yeah, everyone's every, got a lion. Every, any museum worth their salt's got a lion. Have you got a lion? We haven't got a lion. Thank okay. you. <laughs> There might be a lion on a banner somewhere, probably. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, have a little competition with everybody. Where's the funniest place you could put your transmitter? That's a, an interactive element of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send in your pictures. <laughs> well, thank you very much after that excellent answer. Thanks very much for speaking to the C Word. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Jane Henderson, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about dynamic objects. In the meantime, check out our website at thecwood.show, tweet us at The C Word Podcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Dida Misik, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. <laughs>